All right, men, I'm going to pull you back as we dive into this crazy story about Noah. Anybody else think that that was just a total left turn out of nowhere? Like, man, Noah has been this, uh, this icon of faith, and, uh, and we, we catch a glimpse of, of one of his failures. But, um, but yeah, we'll get into that, a lot, lot of interesting things there. But um, let me start off with a word of prayer, and we'll dive into our themes. God, we thank you so much for uh, this time. We really do. We, we want to be men who are shaped by your word. We want to be men who... Um, Lord, are, are molded by your hands into, into holy and blameless people who are walking with you faithfully. Lord, we know that your word is the tool that does that, that it's profitable and effective for uh, training us in righteousness, for correcting us when we're going the wrong way, for, for steering us back, for, for, for putting a, a harness, a bridle in our mouth and steering us back towards you. So I just I pray that work would play out this morning, Lord, as as we look at Noah and look at the failure in his life and look at the, the things that grew out of a sense of complacency and laziness towards his sin, God, uh, would we inspect our own hearts? Would we be thoughtful about the places where we're growing complacent, God? Would you let your word uh, do its work of exposing and leading us towards righteousness? Uh, so we, we pray all this um, in your name. We pray it for your good. Um, amen. All right. Um, start off with our themes as usual. Um, major development across all fronts uh, today. This is, I know we saw Covenant appear last week, but, but this week it shows up in full form. But let's start at the top, Blessing. Uh, you guys see this this week? Um, I, I think the clearest place where it shows up is in this uh, Blessing of Noah and his line as they're coming out of the ark. And, and you have this uh, God bless them, uh, be fruitful and multiply. It almost feels so similar to what happened back in Genesis chapter 1, right? Um, and Bob did a great job of showing us this last week. The flood sort of exists as this chiasm in the book of Genesis of, of decreation and then recreation happening again um, as God judges sin, as He deals with sin. Well, now on the other side of that, God once again blesses mankind and and instructs them to fill the earth. It's sort of a repeat of that dominion mandate that we saw back in chapter 1. Um, sin and judgment, that shows up again this week, also in a similar way to beginning of Genesis as well, right? Like uh, back then, Adam sinned in the garden. It was a perfect environment, and, and he failed. He uh, fell into sin in the garden, and now we have Noah falling into sin in the vineyard, um, and he in the same way. He's not, not that it's totally perfect. I imagine his sons had already sinned, when this happened, I imagine Noah had already sinned when this happened, but you're getting this, again, a crystallized picture of even after this recreated world, after sin has been, in a sense, washed away, uh, it has endured and sin reappears. Uh, it's in us. It's in mankind down deep. Um, we also catch grace. Uh, I think that's mainly uh, connected real closely with that fourth one, covenant, um, because despite sin, despite that it's going to keep showing up, uh, God decides to give this uh, this measure of grace, this covenant to Noah and to all of us, we're still under this covenant today. God promises completely in himself. He promises never again to deal with sin the way he dealt with it in the flood. He will not once again destroy all flesh at once. He won't once again uh, pour out his wrath in, in waters that kill everything, all the animals, all the people. Um, he uh, has decided to restrain that kind of wrath in himself and he in kindness, verbalizes it. That's what a covenant is. He's verbalizing it out loud, uh, speaking promises 
that he has made so that we can know it. And he gives, he gives that covenant a sign, in this case the rainbow, and he promises that every time he sees it, he'll remember his covenant. He will not uh, forget this. And all of this just, I, I want you to hold this example in your mind, because especially as we get into uh, part two of Genesis in the spring, uh, when we start looking at Abraham and what plays out with him and his descendants, um, this covenant aspect of God is going to become front and center. I know it's been a, a diminished theme here in the, the first part. We've just seen glimmers of it um, as we've studied Genesis so far, but it is going to uh, really expand. And, and uh, honestly, it's a really important theme for us today. We're under God's covenants. That's the hope that we have. The covenant of Christ is, we'll, we'll talk about that more in a minute, but um, uh, this week, diving into the text itself, uh, two major things playing out in Genesis, um, two narrative moments that, are, um, that, that we studied, that we read. The first was the conclusion of the flood. Um, last week sort of ended in the middle of the flood narrative. I'm not sure if you noticed that, but they're, the, the flood has ended, but they're still on the boat. Well, this week we pick up and catch that final glimpse of what happens as they exit the boat. Uh, you know, Noah builds this altar, he, his first moment, which is so consistent with who he's been. You know, this uh, walking with God, this blameless heart, he, he wants to step out of the ark and immediately worship God. God's pleased with that. He makes this covenant uh, that, that appears in a protoform there in chapter 8, but then becomes the full covenant in chapter 9 uh, with the sign of the rainbow. Um, uh, you get that blessing, that, that uh, renewal of the dominion mandate, go fill the earth, the animals will be afraid of you. All that's playing out there in that first part. And then you fast forward to this strange account of Noah and his drunken nakedness um, and the ensuing impact it had on future generations. Anybody else really confused about what happened here? Like, what did Ham do wrong? What played out? What, what's going on there? Um, there's a lot of theories about this. I, I read and, and, and listened to a few different uh, things to try and understand what did happen. Did, is it just what happened there? Did Ham just catch a quick glimpse of his dad? Could he have even avoided this? Like, uh, did he do more than that? There are some scholars, some biblical scholars, that sort of look at that story and say uh, there was sexual assault that took place, that Ham uh, abused his father, um, that the language there that he looked upon his nakedness, that it appears in the Bible and other places to describe uh, rape at moments. Um, I, I've studied that closely. I've looked at that. I don't find that to be plausible, if I'm honest with you. And the main reason I don't find it to be plausible is because of the corrective action that the brothers give. Um, notice that after Ham goes in, it says uh, he saw the nakedness of his father and then he told the two brothers outside. Um, but then the two brothers, they walk backwards to be careful not to see and they cover him with a garment. And I'll be I'll, one interesting thing, in the ESV, and I try not to criticize translations when they're done by scholars who are very good at Hebrew and Greek and all that kind of stuff. I, I, they're better than me, so I, I, I generally try not to criticize. But um, it says a garment right there in verse 23 of chapter 9. Um, it, there's a definite article there. It should be the garment. Um, so it appears that, that uh, Ham, like he saw his dad drunk and passed out and naked, and maybe there's a blanket close by, partially covering. It seems like he did gaze upon him. There's some sort of looking that happened. Um, and then he went outside taking the blanket with him and like made fun of his dad, exposed that sin, told it to others. That, that to me seems the most plausible because then the brothers undo it and try to protect it by then covering him up. So I, I don't think it's more. I don't think there's uh, any sexual assault playing out. But nonetheless, this is a, uh, a disturbing story, a confusing story. Um, and honestly, it, it is very confusing about where this came from. Because once again, as I said before, like Noah has been 
the man. Like he is against all the wickedness that was in the whole world. Noah was the one guy who was blameless, the one guy who was righteous, the one guy who's walking with God. So how he already, you know, fought the the war. The whole world was against him and he stayed true. How does this happen? How does this play out? That's really where I want to focus this morning. I want us to look into that a little bit more and and uh, and catch a glimpse of the tragedy of sin because I think that it is 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 poignant in this story. It's it's something to be mourned over. Moses has has written this and, and showcased it in order for the Israelites and I think for us as well to to see how sad it is. So two big points and then a bunch of uh, sub points for you. But the, the first one, I want us to see the tragedy of sin. I want us to really see uh, what Moses I think again is wanting us to see in this text. Uh, feel a sense of grief over what happened. Like just as we grieved when uh, the, the harmony of Eden was destroyed back in chapter 3 when Adam fell, and just as we grieved when Cain refused to listen to the Lord and rule over his sin in chapter 4, uh, God was intervening in Cain's life. He was trying to stop it, and Cain just ignored him. And that, you know, we're, we're supposed to grieve that. So now I think we're supposed to grieve right here. After the horrors of the flood, like this visceral, vivid picture of how God feels about sin and how He deals with it, and after this beautiful moment of worship with this building of the altar, right as Noah exits, uh, this is tragic. Like Noah in his old age, after all of his success slipping into sin here, is totally tragic. So let's, let's tease this out. I want you to see some parts of why this is so sad. First one, first little sub-point here, sin is, oh, there we go. See the tragedy of sin? Sin is relentless. This is uh, really sad to me. Noah is well over 600 years when this happened. Um, we know he was 600 on his birthday when the flood came, 600th year. He had walked with God for centuries at this point. He had been blameless for generations. Like he, he followed God faithfully for so long. He stood strong in the face of a completely corrupt culture in faith, building this ark when it had never rained before, um, acting as the representation of mankind before God. He won, he won the war of faith, guys. I mean, he... He faced a war, and he won it. It already happened. He already won. But then, in his victory, on the other side of it, on one ordinary day, one ordinary evening, he'd worked hard in the vineyard all day, he decides to have one ordinary glass of wine, and there's nothing wrong with that. We've read every word of Genesis so far. God has not prohibited wine. He's told them you have the, the fruit of the ground in order to eat and to enjoy. There's nothing wrong with, with him building this garden, him cultivating the ground, him uh, making this wine and even partaking it. But that day, he felt like he deserved another. He has the second glass, and by golly, he feels like he deserves another. And he has another one, and another one, and another one. And small, tiny, little decisions that don't feel like they're a big deal at all catch him in a moment where he's not on guard, and he just totally falls apart. Into that, you know, into his ear, that sneaky little snake from, from chapter 3, like, whispers those Sneaky words that he still whispers to us today. It doesn't matter. Nobody's going to know. No one is seeing. You deserve this. It's just one more glass. And in one simple moment, Noah lets down his guard and sin was ready to pounce. And that's what I want you to see here. Like, Satan never lets up, men. He's always watching. He's roaming the earth looking for someone to devour. He's strategic. He, he times his temptations right. And he's ready to throw those arrows as soon as he sees an opportunity. And this, our flesh isn't going away. The Bible never gives us hope. I mean, until redemption comes, until the new uh, age, until Christ returns or we go to heaven, then once and for all, he'll, he'll take away our flesh and, and fully sanctify us. But in this age, we have to fight. 
We have to live in this state of, of relentless warfare. He, Satan just doesn't stop. So don't be ignorant to his schemes. And, and, and in this story, as we see Noah falling, like mourn the, the sad reality that sin is relentless. It's a, it's a tragic reality, but it's definitely true. Second, second thing I, th- I think we see here that's so tragic, sin gives birth. Why is this not working? Sorry. Sin gives birth to shame. Always, always, always. It never delivers on the good thing it promises. It always brings forth guilt, shame, and ultimately death. Like, I think Noah drunk, passed out, his family embarrassed, his family having to deal with his sin. I think this is the perfect picture, perfect illustration of what the Bible tells us repeatedly about sin. It doesn't end well. Like, it just ends in a mess that other people are having to clean up. You're ashamed. Other people are ashamed. Like, this is, this, is, uh, this is what happens. Sin lies to us. Satan lies to us and thinks that it's private. There's no such thing as private sin. Like, the Bible is clear about this. Uh, Luke chapter 12, we just studied this on Sunday uh, a few weeks ago. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. That's, that's chapter 12, verse 2. 1 Corinthians 4.12 tells us that when the Lord comes, He will bring to light the things that are hidden in darkness. Whether in this age or... or Whenever Christ returns, everything is going to come out. There's no such thing as like hidden things. Sin just inevitably uh, gives birth to these moments. If we give in to the alluring siren's call of temptation, one day, sooner or later, we're going to wake up, just like Noah here, ashamed, sad, embarrassed. Like, (laughs) this this is what gets me. And honestly, it makes me really sad. Noah did so much right. He lived centuries of godliness. This is the story we're talking about 4,000 years later. We are reliving Noah's shame. Noah is in heaven with God. Hebrews tells us that. His faith took him to heaven. He's not disconnected from God. Sin isn't the final word with God. There is redemption, but don't miss it. It leads to shame. It gives birth to it for generations, for millennia. I mean, there's no good ending on the other side of sin. No matter what it's telling you, this is just how it goes. Brings us to the third one here. This is just not working, man. I'm so sorry. Uh, sin harms those closest to us. It harms those closest to us. We think we have it contained. We like to think it doesn't affect anyone but me. You know, but as it grows tragically, it always hurts and betrays our closest loved ones. You know, just like a grenade going off, it sends shrapnel around in the people who, who are near us. Um, and I see this happening twice in this text. First with Ham, who sins, right? Like, there's no doubt here he should not have been looking on his dad's nakedness. It's weird. This is a weird story. I don't quite know how long he looked. I don't know what he was thinking as he looked, but there's some sort of clear perversion playing out in him when he does this. And it's sin. He's accountable to God for it. He shouldn't have done it. God will hold him accountable for this. Yet, hear hear me, it is only a result of his dad's sin that Ham ended up in this situation to begin with. Had Noah not sinned, had Noah not messed up, Ham wouldn't have been put in this moment. So, in a sense, this is what I would call derivative sin, sin that gives birth to sin in others. I see this all the time as a pastor. Like, a couple will come in and they're having marriage problems and there's some sort of broken trust that's played out, maybe even adultery. And now, on the other side of it, let's say it's the husband who did this, the wife is trying to forgive, the wife is willing to work on it, but she's dealing with bitterness and anger and and hard-heartedness towards her husband. And and it's like this residual. And is that wrong? Is it wrong to be bitter and anger and unforgiving? Yes, it's sin. But whose fault is that sin? It is hers, yes, but it's, you get what I'm saying? Like sin just does this. It like explodes and harms others. We think it's small. We think it won't affect anything, but, but it has this chain reaction. I also see it not just with Ham, but with Shem and Japheth, who have to cover up their dad's nakedness. 
And for them, it's not derivative sin. Like I think Scripture is so careful in the way it's worded. Moses is so careful to show us that these two brothers did nothing wrong here. Like, my point isn't that sin spread into their lives, but rather that sin hurts them. Why are they put in this situation where they have to cover up their dad's nakedness? Why do they have to deal with the embarrassment and the shame and trying to protect their dad from the shame that their dad has created for them? It is the complete, hear me, it's the complete reversal of the dominion mandate. God has told men to protect their children. God has told men to care for their families. They're the ones meant to be providing covering and and shielding and leadership to their kids. And yet because sin has played out, they're put in this miserable situation uh, where, where they're now having to protect their dad and deal with this embarrassing situation. Family, this is, this is treachery. This is betrayal. This is, this is Noah completely uh, failing on his duty as a father. And we're meant to see it. It's tragic. Trage- see the tragedy of sin in this, in this passage. Brings us to the fourth one here. Sin repeats in our kids. What I'm trying to get at here is the, uh, the truth of generational sin. This is really interesting. Tune in here because I did not notice this at first. The commentaries had to bring this out for me. Um, but we do see something in Scripture, we call it generational sin, where it's the, it's the reappearing of sin in future generations. Like the same thing a dad struggled with, now his kid's struggling with, now his grandkid's struggling with, it just keeps reappearing. And some people say, well, is it a gene? Is there an alcohol gene? Is there a, is there a, a pornography, an adultery gene? Is that why this keeps happening? Maybe there is. I mean, I don't know. The Bible's not totally clear on that. I don't, I don't think that we uh, have a, a definitive answer to give to that question. But I do know this. I think it's more plausible. And, and much more uh, true in my own experience, that it's not so much genetic predisposition, it is more patterns of watched behavior. That dad has failed and son has watched it. And therefore son embodies what he's seen and he responds to problems in the same way. And so it just keeps showing up. We totally see this in this passage. Uh, specifically, um, on the other side, once Noah wakes up from his drunken stupor. What does he do? He, he finds out about this. He's apparently told what happened, and he uh, does what with it? He uh, curses not Ham who did it, but who? Canaan. Which, we're, look, at, look at chapter 10, verse 6. We find out who Canaan was. Canaan was Ham's son, but he was his fourth son. And it's a little confusing. Like, like scholars sort of say, why is Canaan getting the curse here? It makes no sense. And, and what they speculate, and I think they're spot on, is that Canaan... This is already past. Canaan's born. Like, they're probably adults at this point. Most likely, Noah is probably 700, 800 years old when this all happened. Final season of his life, he's not fighting sin, and it gets him. But Noah already saw in Canaan the qualities in Ham that made him do this. Maybe Ham was perverted. Maybe Ham was clearly sexually, like, weird and and deviant and this was evident and his son Canaan was already demonstrating this as well and Noah in this kind of prophetic oracle telling of what's happening he sort of says he puts the curse on on Canaan because he sees that it's already playing out and interestingly I think this is totally plausible because guess what we find out about Canaan later Uh, Canaan's children totally play this out Leviticus 18 you don't have to flip there but you can go study it later I'm going to show you one passage from this Um, it describes, this is Moses later uh, to the same Israelites. This is still part of the Pentateuch, which Moses wrote. But he is commanding um, the Israelites how to deal with the Canaanites, how to deal with the generations that follow Canaan. And look what he says. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan. 
to which I'm bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules. Keep my statutes. Walk in them. I am the Lord your God. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It's your father's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter, your, father's da your mother's daughter, whoever brought up in the family of another home. He goes on to say the word nakedness 24 times in that chapter to describe, don't walk like the Canaanites, walk like me. Whatever is present in Ham in Genesis chapter 9. Whatever Noah sees in Canaan in Genesis chapter 9 comes forth generations later as widespread sexual perversion and deviancy. And, and this is my point, men. Sin shows up in your children. Again, you think it's contained. You think it's not affecting others, but it has this propensity to be repeated. Even things that are hidden. Your kids see you. Your kids see what you care about. Your kids see the way you respond to problems. Your kids see your anger. And it shows, how many of you parents see that? Like you see your own worst qualities showing up in your kids, and it's so convicting. I mean, this is, this is reality, and we're meant to mourn it. We're meant to see how tragic it is. I mean, a few weeks ago we talked about um, John Owen, the great Puritan John Owen, who said that great quote, be killing sin lest it be killing you. Remember that one? I think it's also true to say be killing sin lest it be killing your son lest it be killing your daughter. Like, if we do not take our own sin seriously, man, it just, it just will do what it's doing here in this passage. It'll, it'll harm our loved ones by being repeated. Uh, which brings us to the last one here. Sin requires a covering. Uh, it's ugly. Sin is not pretty. When it's uncovered, when it is shown for what it is, I mean, this is not a, a, a story that we should revel in. This is a shameful, ugly story it is right. I think this, this act of uncovering and recovering is totally like illustrating this truth. Like we're not supposed to look on this stuff. We're not supposed to see it. Sin in all of its form. You know, Ephesians chapter, chapter 5 even says like, don't even talk about what's done in the darkness. Like it's, it's not right for children of light to be, be thinking this way and, and, and manifest in this garment and the merciful act of, of Shem and Japheth. I think we're seeing something true, which is that sin is shameful and it, you know, it's, it's an ugly thing to behold. Um, but but in, their, in their mercy, I think this is really cool here, Shem and Japheth do provide a covering. They do something good here by covering up what, what has been exposed. Here, Ham is just talking about sin and, and spreading it, and, and uh, Shem and Japheth uh, intervene to cover it up. Hopefully they had a conversation with their dad the next day about, hey, dad, let's lay off the, the wine. Hopefully they did more than just hide sin, but they actually dealt with sin. Be men who don't lose out on that. Your job is not to just cover up the sins of your children, but to deal with them, to step in and get at their hearts and solve the problems. But scholars point out that in this act of covering, when was the, this even showed up in our study, when was the last time somebody was naked and needed covering? Adam and Eve in the garden, right? And in there and in here, we're seeing sort of in this way a, a foretelling of Christ, a foretelling of one day that we would get a better covering, something that would cover us completely and deal with our sin in full. Um, and we know that's ultimately in Christ, which brings us to the last point here. Um, see the tragedy of sin, but, but also see the beauty of grace. Uh, certainly, like we, we are meant to be pointed in our, in our day today as we study this to the cross. Um, uh, but here in Genesis 8 and 9, I think the place where you see the grace the most is in this uh, covenant, in the covenant that God gave to Noah and to mankind after the flood. 
um, you know, after all this sin that existed before the flood, after all the judgment that God poured out in light of that sin, God now makes a promise. And he does this. This is what I want you to, to, to keep in your minds. He steps into and towards what is deserved, which is death, and he gives instead grace. Like Noah playing this out again, what's deserved on the other side of the flood is another flood. As sin begins to multiply again and as it's going to go out into generations through, through Canaan and just be exploited and, and, um, and grow in massive form, what's deserved from God is once again another, another flood to clean it all up. But he steps towards what's deserved and, and instead gives us what's undeserved. This is showing his grace. This is showing who God is, a merciful God, that he restrains, govern, uh, he, he restrains his judgment in order to give us grace. Um, a few interesting things about this covenant that I'd never really thought about before. It's First, it's universal. It applies to everyone forever. This is still in effect today. Like We can stand under this covenant right now because the way God phrases it, it's a universal covenant. He's not going to destroy the earth with water ever. It will last forever. Uh, secondly, it's unilaterally. It's unilateral. It only involves God. Nobody else is involved in this covenant. Um, we have no place here except to enjoy it. God did not put any terms on mankind that they have to fulfill in order to enjoy this protection of not being destroyed again. He just, he just straight out gives grace that's completely unmerited, and it's also unconditional. Like there, again, there's no conditions to fulfill. There's no other party in this covenant. It is, it is purely dependent upon God. We simply get to enjoy it. We get to enjoy His grace because of His gracious promise. And I think in that, it's really pointing us to Christ. It's really pointing us to to the gospel because that's just, in a very real sense it's the same terms that we get in Christ um, at the Last Supper in Luke 22 um, as Jesus is inaugurating um, for us the Lord's Supper and he's passing around the bread and saying take this and eat it's my body and he passes around the the wine he's in Luke 22:20. 20, you can go look it up he says this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood and in a similar way to, to God giving a covenant of grace through Noah, with the sign of the rainbow, God now with us gives us a new covenant in Christ with the sign of the blood. A blood that accomplishes for us a complete covering of our sins, a complete washing away. Um, and I, I still love, I love that it's a rainbow here in, in, uh, in Genesis because I think it does point us to the cross as well. Um, did you notice um, Moses does not use the word rainbow, he just uses the word bow. And you may not know this, but in, he, in the Hebrew, that is the exact same word as bow. I mean, it's, and, and it's like God is hanging up his war. He's hanging up death. He's hanging up his right to confront sin with destruction in order to give grace instead. Um, that's who God is. Sin is horrific. It's tragic. It destroys. It leaves havoc. But God, when he intervenes, he puts his bow away. He gives us grace. He heals us. Um, so let's bring this to a close, men. I mean, this... this story struck me this week. It really did strike me. Uh, even yesterday as I was kind of putting this all together, uh, I just got sad. I just got really sad for Noah. Really sad that this is the story we have to talk about. Really sad that this is the, uh, the legacy that we have to endure. And I'm sad because I see this again and again and again as a pastor. I see what this looks like. I get a front row view to watching the destruction that Satan wreaks in the lives of men and women. And it's, it gets exhausting sometimes. It really does. I also, praise be to God, get to see God work and redeem and heal. But I get sad, family. I really do get sad when I, when I don't see men fighting, when I don't see men waging war against their sin, when I don't see women 
the answers are there. God provides protection. He provides redemption from sin. He re rebuilds what's been broken. He takes out the shrapnel and allows healing to come. But it only happens when we turn to Him, when we come and take shelter under Him, when we confess our sin and begin to fight against it. It's a dangerous thing to, to grow casual, to grow complacent with our sin. So I don't know. I don't know what your area of sin is. I don't know what your temptations are. Maybe it's alcohol and drunkenness like Noah. Taking something that God has given as a good thing and pushing past its limits to turn it into something that's sinful. I don't, that might be you. Maybe it's gazing on nakedness like Ham. Pornography. If statistics are true. Most of you in this room deal with that on a regular basis. Maybe it's something else. I think those are two very common ones, but maybe it's something else. I don't know what it is, but I do know this, family. Your sin will destroy you. Your sin will harm your family. It will harm the ones you love. It will come to light. It will leave you naked and embarrassed with you know, shame covering you. Don't be deceived. Don't listen to the lies of the enemy that would have you believe that it doesn't matter. It matters. So fight. Stop giving in. Bring it to the light. Come talk to a pastor. Find a way to wage a holy war so that you don't have to live in this mess anymore. Open up and deal with it. Come to Jesus who provides a covering and experiences grace. Let me pray. God, we love you. Father, it's interesting how this theme of sin just keeps reappearing in Genesis. But Father, maybe that's your grace. Maybe some of us in this room are still hardening ourselves to your word. We're not responding. We're not repenting. We're not confessing. We're just still hiding. We're still hoping that if we don't say it and we stop doing it, it won't matter anymore. Lord, you, you tell us to deal with it. You tell us to pull it out, to bring it to the light so that it might become light, that we should confess to our brothers so that we might be healed. Lord, there's, there's healing when we bring it to you, Father, but there's nothing but further shame when we leave it hidden, Lord. So would you please convict anyone in this room still struggling? If there's sin that is gripping, Father, that is binding men in this room, Lord, would you do what you did in this passage last Sunday? Would you call them to yourself? Would you lay your hands upon them? Would you set them free? Straighten that bent spine. Break that arthritis, Lord, and allow there to be healing. Allow there to be health. Um, we love you, God. You're the only one who can redeem us. We take refuge under your bow. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right, last and final week is next week. So, uh... Uh, come if you if you miss it if you're like busy next week just know next week is week 10 that's when we conclude part one and then we'll take a pause for thanksgiving and christmas and come back in january i'll email that but just want you to have a heads up we'll see you next week guys